seen this or have you done that yeah. for clients? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't come up all the time, but it does come up, yeah. And is it quite a tedious exercise to then get <laughs> further tranches into the SMSF? Well, yeah, it is a little like because you've got to do the transfer each time. And I mean, if there's no bank involved, it's simpler because you can just do a contribution. If it's gone up in value, you've got CGT. At that point, you might have small business concessions or something to shield it. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 187 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In episode 177, when we spoke about the options you have to invest super in property, we touched on SMSFs buying property as tenants in common with another entity. This entity could be you as a member or another member or another SMSF or unit trust. The options are many. Let's briefly look at this again and use the following scenario. Our legendary Bob buys a property in New South Wales together with his SMSF. The property is $2 million and Bob and his SMSF each acquire 50% as tenants in common. So each put $1 million onto the table. Bob later contributes another 10% as an in-specie contribution and now the value of the property has increased, let's say to 2.2 million. So Bob now holds only 40% and the SMSF holds 60%. Looking at the acquisition and the uh, subsequent contribution, how exactly does this all work? This is the question I asked Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney. Okay, so the scenario we've got here, we've got and not an uncommon scenario. We've got Bob buying some business property situated in New South Wales and he's buying it jointly between himself as uh, in his personal capacity and with his self-managed super fund, SMSF. The property's worth $2 million and the SMSF doesn't have $2 million and doesn't want to borrow, so... What they do is that they purchase the property 50-50. So SMSF puts in a million dollars and Bob personally puts in a million dollars. And it's a good point that you said it's a business property because, of course, all this only works if it's a business property. Actually, it could work with a residential property. It's just that Bob couldn't contribute any further tranches. Correct. For non-business property, then... Residential. Residential, yeah. If if, if it's non-business property... Superfund can still buy it. It's just that you can't, uh, the related party rule prevents you from doing dealings essentially after that. So in this scenario, what we're looking at is essentially the strategy of starting at 50-50, but over time, Bob wanting to move value or shift the percentage ownership to the SMSF with, I suppose, the goal of trying to be, trying to be 100% in the, in the SMSF over time. Now, whenever you're doing property transfers, you've always got to think about tax because you can't sort of do anything in the property world without tax or or at least thinking about tax. You've got a duty exemption in New South Wales under Section 62A for transfers from members to their self-managed super funds. 
And what the concession, I should say, says is that it will only attract a stamp duty of $500 rather than stamp duty worked out based on the market value of what's being transferred. So it's almost an exemption. But the important point is that the property must be in individual names before the transfer and it must go into the super account of the member. Yeah, it's reasonably straightforward where you've got one super fund member, so you've got a sole member. Where you've got multiple members, it can become a little bit more complex. You've just got to sort of make sure things are done right so that you, you do actually qualify for the concession. Yeah, it's a but good it's point. not it's not important that the um, property that is then in the fund is segregated. It can be unsegregated. It's just that the interest, basically on needs the other side, needs to be allocated to, allocated to the member. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Correct. And in New South Wales, it doesn't matter if the transaction is a sale or a contribution. It both can qualify for the duty concession. So it can be a contribution where the super fund doesn't pay anything because you're using the contribution caps. So, you know, the concessional or the non-concessional or even the CGT cap where you've got a, a access to that. Uh, but it could also be a sale. So the, the super fund actually paying for the other share and that could be done through bank finance and so forth. But it would still qualify for the exemption. These um, super fund transfer exemptions are different in every single state. So this is only relevant to New South Wales. There are different exemptions in there. New South Wales is one of the more broad exemptions, but in each state, slightly different. Oh, I see. So the other states don't necessarily have this very generous exemption. Yeah. For example, in, in Victoria, the exemption only applies to contributions. So in other words, you only get duty exemptions if the super fund is not paying anything for what it's getting. So, And in order for that to work, it has to be a contribution because obviously can't do it to a super fund if it's not a commercial transaction or a contribution. So yeah, it does differ from state to state. New South Wales is uh, more concessionary. Hmm. And because the shares are held as tenants in common, in theory, the individual member, so in this case, Bob, in theory, Hmm. Bob could put a mortgage on his tenants in common share but it's very unlikely that one will ever find a bank who would agree to that. Yeah, the the issue is, so in theory that that could work because in a legal sense, Bob owns his share of the property and can sort of do what he likes with it. And also the super fund owns its share of the property and can also do what it likes with it, subject to all the super fund rules. The issue arises that an uh, SMSF can't, charge any of its assets subject to the limited recourse borrowing arrangement rules but otherwise it can't actually charge any of its assets and commonly what you would find in this scenario is that you would struggle to find a bank that would be willing to take security only over 50 percent of a property rather than the entire property the reason being i guess one banks are banks and they sort of risk averse and want to take security over as much as possible if they're lending and two that well if they don't have security over the entire property they sort of are a little bit I guess vulnerable to the other co-owner I mean in this case it's a super fund but just as a general principle in practice you'd find that getting a bank to actually take security only over half of a property would be quite rare. 
Yes. Yeah. And in theory, the bank could put a mortgage on Bob's share and then put an LRBA on the SMSF share. But of course, that makes little sense because then you might as well put the entire property into the SMSF and then have an LRBA over the full property. Yeah, I'd say in that case, what you'd want to do is try to arrange a financier who's willing to lend solely against the property, move it into the super fund and then have it as a LRBA. Capital gains tax. Mm. How does the capital gains tax work? Let's say Bob contributes a further 10% the next year. And let's say the value has gone up. Originally, the value was 2 million. Now the value is 2.2 million. So if Bob contributes 10%, it is now 220,000 rather than 200,000. What happens to this 20,000 capital gain in Bob's individual tax return? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. So from a CGT perspective, the CGT rules, they don't distinguish between sales between unrelated parties and, and sales between related parties for the most part. So you could do transactions, you know, such as transactions between family members and they will trigger CGT. This case is no different. The property has a market value of more than $2 million now and one way or another, the transfer is going to result in a, in a capital gain of $20,000. Uh, there may be small business concession relief for that. That's something to consider and that would be based on applying the small business concession rules. If the business property was actually used by Bob or a related entity, then perhaps that could be a way to get that gain down to, to zero. But otherwise it is an impost and it's, a, I guess, a negative on considering you know doing these things. In these scenarios, have you seen option contracts being drawn up where the SMSF basically receives a right to buy any tranches at the original price, meaning hmm. there is no capital gain? Yeah, that's a good question. So what the option contract would be, if I'm understanding correctly, is that Bob, as owner of 50%, would grant an option to the SMSF and say, SMSF, you can buy the property at $2 million into the future And, you know, you don't have to pay anything for this option and there's really not much other restrictions on it. And so that wouldn't be at arm's length? That's, that's what I'm getting at. That, that arrangement is very unlikely to be at arm's length. So I, I think that would be breaching at least a couple of super fund rules. I imagine it would be breaching the related party dealing rules because acquiring an option is still an asset. So it could potentially be you've actually acquired an asset from a related party, could be breaching arm's length dealing rules and any income derived could be subject to the non-arm's length income rules as well. So, so it's very dangerous because it could make the entire transaction non-arm's length. Yeah, I mean all the income derived is taxed at the top marginal, marginal rate. rate. Yeah, so very dangerous. Yeah. We do sometimes see these sort of options arrangements entered into in the context of asset protection but they're usually between Bob and Bob's family trust so that if anything happens to Bob, the family trust can exercise a right to buy the property at its, its historical value. So it can be useful in the context of asset protection, but I wouldn't 
yeah, I probably would steer clear of it in the context of a self-managed super fund because the overlay of the CIS Act rules would probably mean that it's contravening a, a number of sections. So even if you made the option at a price, if the SMS have had to pay for the right to buy at original cost, even if you put a market price on it, mm. there's still a risk that it would contravene that, the CIS Act. That may be okay. I need to sort of look at some of the more nuanced rules a little further but what that would at least require at a very minimum is a market value to be paid for that option so the smsf would need to pay whatever is a market value for that option there's then the question well is that transaction even allowed at all anyway buying an option from a related party and i sort of sometimes apply a bit of a smell test to those kind of arrangements and you say mm, look i'm not sure this is really <laughs> going to be compliant so i'd still say yeah you'd have to look tricky. at it very carefully it's yeah. pretty tricky welcome back so a joint acquisition only works if you have the missing funds outside of super if you don't and you need a bank to fill the gap then a joint acquisition probably won't work since banks are unlikely to put an LRBA mortgage on a property that is only partially held by an SMSF as tenants in common. In the next episode, episode 188, Andrew Henshaw will talk about LRBAs with related parties. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.